Hey everybody, welcome to the show. Before we get started, I have a pretty good feeling that you, like me, are interested in the eternal consequences of hell. I know this because you all seem to listen to those two episodes the most of any. And there is a conference coming up in Dallas in March, and I thought it would be pertinent to bring on Chris Date from Rethinking Hell to talk a bit about that conference. So Chris, what would you have people know? It's March 9th and 10th. It's a Friday and Saturday coming up in just under four weeks. It is in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. And basically, this is our fifth annual conference. We've had four previous ones. And at this conference, you know, we've, we've covered a variety of different topics related to this one. Um, but this year, we're going to be focusing on the atonement. Uh, and so the theme of the conference is crushed for our iniquities, hell, and the atoning work of Christ. Now, the plenary speakers, uh, the, the keynote speakers, if you want to use that language instead, they include uh, four people. First is Preston Sprinkle. We've also got Dr. Craig Evans. He is a scholar from Houston Baptist University. We also have Greg Allison. He is a historical theologian from Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. And then last, but most most certainly least, is myself. The cost of registration is not expensive. Our conference is a mere $50. It's really going to be great. It's, it's March 9th and 10th at the Heights Baptist Church in Richardson, Texas, which is part of the greater Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex. And if people want to learn more, if people want to register, contact us with questions, they can just go to RethinkingHellConference.com. Hello there, friends. Welcome back to another episode of the Can I Say This at Church podcast. Happy to have you here today. Today's conversation is uh, slightly different. It it has a theological underpinning, uh, but we got to scratch a sci-fi itch. And I know there's many of you that have these conversations. You watch shows on Netflix and you'll see allegories between Christ and Superman or Neo and the Matrix. and, And there are a lot of things that religion can learn from science fiction and science fiction can learn from religion. And so I was able to sit down with Dr. James McGrath who is the Clarence L. Goodwin Chair in New Testament Language and Literature at Butler University. Uh, He got his Ph.D. from Durham, mostly in New Testament, and uh, specifically on John's Apologetic Christology. That's been published in the Cambridge University Press. Uh, He's written many books, and and so we we discuss one in specific called Theology and Science Fiction, where we, we look at the correlations between how we view God and how theology can work in a lens of science fiction and vice versa, how the two borrow from each other and how we can use those thought experiments to view Christ or view God and view religion as a whole uh, with different viewpoints and and learn to lean into uncertainty and open thought in new ways. Uh, Dr. McGrath, thank you so much for joining us today on on the the Can I Say This at Church podcast. Um, It is... It's a privilege to talk to you. I'm excited for the topic at hand today. I'm excited to be here. Uh, it sounds like you've got a great podcast, and um, I'm certainly looking forward to talking about the topic you've chosen for us today. Yeah, thanks. So, yeah, when I was I was researching out just different topics, and I saw that you'd written a book on on theology and science fiction, and 
there were just many things that spoke to my heart. Uh, your blog as well, the, the the stuff that you write about Doctor Who, I enjoy, but I don't want to get in the weeds too quickly. So can you can you briefly just just introduce yourself to the listeners just a little bit about how you came to do the work that you do and, and just your story a little bit. Sure. Um, and like most uh, stories, there's a long version, a short version, and uh, I'll try and keep it short to begin with. And you can um, always ask for, for more details if anything sounds interesting. Uh, I ended up doing what I'm doing after um, at age 15, I had a, a, a personal uh, experience of coming to faith. And soon after, uh, right, I was in high school, was thinking about what I wanted to do after and uh, decided to uh, go off to Bible college and uh, try and learn a bit about, you know, well, find out about this uh, thing that had happened to me and uh, explore my faith, learn more. And at that point, wasn't thinking about going into teaching, but um, met someone there who uh, persuaded me that they thought I'd be a good teacher, uh, ended up marrying that person. So, um, you know, learned to take her advice early on. Nice. <laughs> um, and when you study uh, the Bible, right, uh, oftentimes what you learn uh, doesn't just reinforce, right, I mean, but also challenges the, the things that you think you know about it. And of course, if that didn't happen, then you wouldn't actually be learning, which would be a worrying thing. But uh, sometimes we approach faith in a way that uh, leads us to think that learning and changing our minds is actually a bad thing rather than something that we're actually encouraged to do, right? Uh, change, renewal of the mind, it's, it's all woven in there, um, repentance even. Yeah. Changing our thinking, turning around. Um, so learned a lot that uh, challenged some of my assumptions, but uh, led me on a path that the short version is got me um, teaching biblical studies mainly, but as a longtime science fiction fan, when I ended up teaching at Butler University, I'm in a, a fairly small uh, program, small department, which at the very least allows and certainly at times encourages us to branch out and teach on side interests outside of our area of expertise, uh, sometimes in the core curriculum, but even in, in courses for the major and minor. And so science fiction quickly presented itself as, as an option. And it's one of several side interests that I've explored through teaching that eventually became areas of uh, research interest. And actually, in this case, I've actually um, managed to have uh, you know, science fiction short story published, which has been exciting for me, branching out into a new genre. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's good. Yeah, and there's one of those, well, there's an extremely short story at the end of your book that I, I, the first one specifically touched me, but we'll get to that towards the tail end. So, so your background uh, academically is, is predominantly focused on the New Testament. And so why, well, I'll, I'll merge two questions into one. So why science fiction? What drew you to it? And then I guess to expand upon that, there seems to be that same affinity with other academics as well as well as many pastors at least the the, the few that I know um, in my background a little bit I went to Liberty so I know quite a few people that are either in lay ministry or have gone into ministry and they seem to be the people that I have the best science fiction um, conversations with of, of anyone um, so why why science fiction for you and then kind of why do you think that that thematically fits for I guess religion yeah, and it's it's hard to say exactly why for me. I can talk about why I continue to love it, but I remember 
you know, Star Trek toys and Star Wars action figures and things like that um, as far back as I can remember. And so uh, clearly there's something in upbringing that's, uh, that's part of it as well. Mm-hmm. Um, part of it though is just an interest, I think, in thinking about the future, you know, um, asking big questions of the sort that of course theology and philosophy also do. But science fiction bleeds naturally into theology and into philosophy. Um, if you want to ask a question, you know, what is a person? What is an individual? Uh, what makes you you? Then creating a science fictional uh, device that can make a copy of you is a great thought experiment. Right? And sometimes philosophers will come up with sci-fi stories, essentially, in order to explore these things. Mm-hmm. And so I think there's a there's a natural connection. And so uh, it didn't happen immediately. Um, what actually happened was uh, for um, for one year when I was uh, teaching part time at two different institutions, I was commuting a lot on the train, and so had time to read for pleasure um, at length in a way that I didn't um, always have up until that point. Mm-hmm. Um, I haven't always had after that point either. But uh, and so I actually picked up and. Uh, got caught up on something that I long wanted to read but hadn't read up until that point, which was um, Frank Herbert's Dune. And of course, that's one that engages with theology, has religious ideas and um, perspectives woven into the story in interesting ways. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's especially relevant. You see Dune referenced a lot today with when you know, with jihad and, 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 and extreme uh, nationalism isn't the word, but uh, I haven't read Dune, so it's hard for me to relate 100% to it. But from what I can get from everyone else's uh, context it seems to be well it's on the list i just haven't done it so yeah yeah and it's it's interesting how you know on the one hand you know there are things which reflect very much the time in which it was written on the other hand some of the concerns and some of the the things i think have remained of interest and so yeah it's it's worth getting to yeah so in your book you take well, you quickly in the beginning say that just to treat the relationship between science fiction and religion or science fiction and theology at the level of, well, let's recognize Neo from the Matrix as a Jesus figure, or let's recognize X, Y, or Z as an extremely simple allegory uh, to a biblical story or biblical theme, or religious theme for that matter, uh, is, is, is really just a topical application. And so I was hoping you could speak briefly to, to why that is and then what a, a more nuanced approach would be. Sure. Uh, so I think the main thing about you know, the, the, the approach that spots Christ figures or uh, I would say not, not so much finds, but often turns things in a, a, relig- in a science fiction story into a religious allegory. Uh, not that there's necessarily anything wrong with doing that, you know, let's say in a sermon or something like that, but I think it's a fairly superficial level of analysis, right? Um, and it's something that you can do with just about anything, um, because there are, you know, the what we tend to call the Christ figure in our uh, society, right? There are also um, even more, even broader uh, conceptualities of of hero, of savior, and if all we do is say, "Hey, look, there's a figure that saves somebody," or yeah, somebody dies sacrificing themselves in order to save others. That's just like Jesus. Well, it may be a little like Jesus. In most science fiction, it's not exactly like Jesus. And asking those kinds of questions, like, did the script writer intend a comparison? 
is this something that's being read into it? Uh, is are the points of similarity with Jesus superficial? Is there a deeper level at which the author is maybe actually either offering an alternative to Jesus, right, as science fiction authors sometimes do, mm-hmm. or updating Jesus, or actually expressing their own Christian faith by having somebody being willing to sacrifice themselves? And so asking those questions about you know, what's really going on, not just noticing similarities, but also looking at differences, and asking about the meaning of the whole package and not just those points of similarity that can serve as a kind of a sermon illustration or, you know, be part of a, you know, a geek devotional or something like that, right? Um, And so I think that that level of looking at things allows one to, you know, be not just, you know, encouraged, but also challenged by whatever one finds there. And it also allows us, I think, to notice other things where sometimes science fiction might not have an obvious Christ figure or something like that, the kind of thing that sometimes is in your face. But it may have elements of spirituality. It may have elements of you know, asking big questions. Uh, may have elements of theology at a more, a more implicit level. And those are the things that we often miss if all we do are look for the obvious, you know, this person dies and when he does so, he stretches out his arms and right. takes the side of a cross. Yeah. And if we never get, there's nothing wrong with doing that. And sometimes Sometimes that's those are things we're supposed to notice in a film. My concern is that sometimes we don't get past that to asking the deep question. And sometimes we don't notice when we're so busy reading our own theology into the story to find an illustration that we can use that we fail to see things where the author might be um, saying things that not only don't reinforce what we already believe, but could potentially challenge it. And so we miss an opportunity for conversation with someone that might be saying something different than what we already think. Yeah. You you make your correlation in your book between a, a Doctor Who fan, and I count myself among them, and I also would be guilty of this, uh, for being a Marcionite, and so you may have to define that a bit. Um, I'm sure many are not familiar with it, uh, because they have never watched anything prior to Christopher Eccleston, which is the reboot that you can find on, I think, Amazon or Netflix or wherever it is anymore, uh, as opposed to watching everything, I guess being a completionist, for lack of a better word. Um, so can you explain that analogy between someone just beginning in the, in the last century or decade, uh, as opposed to someone, you know, knowing the whole thing, how that relates to Marcionism, and then kind of that, how that correlates to our faith, and, and then just religion in general? And I know that's a big question, so I, I apologize. Oh, not at all. So uh, mostly I was making a joke, um, a joke that um, was aimed at basically people like you and me who are sort of theology, geek out about theology and geek out about Doctor Who. Mm-hmm. Um, on the theology and on the church history end, uh, there was a figure in the early church named Marcion uh, who bears a striking resemblance, at least in some aspects, to the kinds of things that you'll hear a lot today, but who basically said that the, the God of the Jewish scriptures, the God of what Christians call the Old Testament, is a different God from the loving God and Father of Jesus Christ. And so whenever somebody today says, that's just the Old Testament, right? Or that's mm-hmm. the Old Testament God. That's, they're at least moving in the direction of this individual. And there's a lot that would be worth exploring there, I think, uh, in its own right. 
But the analogy I was making is to um, people who basically say, well, that's the old thing, right? And you can do the same thing with Doctor Who. You can say, well, the stuff that's in black and white, I'm obviously not going to go back and read that. Right. And, you know, it's, you know, being in black and white is a bit like, you know, being in Leviticus and having all these, you know, purity rules <laughs> or, you know, kinds of things that seem seem so obscure to someone today, right? There's this disconnect, there's this distance. And I think that's one of the reasons why, you know, one if, if we ask why do people who do biblical studies, in fact, I think you asked this earlier, uh, but I'm not sure I ever got around to answering it, but why do people who do biblical studies often take an interest in sci-fi? Studying particularly Hebrew Bible, Old Testament, you become aware of this huge gap of culture, of history, of time, conceptuality between yourself and these ancient people. They're thinking about purity. They're thinking about oaths. They're thinking about marriage. They're thinking about so many things. It's just so different from our own, if we read the text, you know, honestly. Um, and it's easy to just set those things aside and say, well, you know, I'll, I'll read that if and when somebody makes me, but otherwise I'm going to stick with this stuff that's a little clearer and, you know, seems more relevant. Mm -hmm. But that stuff in the New Testament presupposes and engages with that stuff in the Old Testament or Hebrew Bible. And so... If you leave that out, then you're going to miss a lot. And if you watch Doctor Who, if you watch the last episode of Doctor Who, mm -hmm. I won't give any spoilers because I'm not sure how you feel about that in this podcast. Uh, I, I, I watched it, so I can put a spoiler alert in there. And, and if they want to fast forward okay. 10 seconds, then by, by all means. Okay, but there are things in that episode which you will not get unless you have watched really, really old Doctor Who. And it's the same with reading the New Testament, right? There are things which if you don't know Jewish scriptures, if you don't know traditions of interpretation of the Jewish scriptures, right, after they were written, there are things that you'll miss. And so really what I was doing was mostly making making a humorous aside in calling some Doctor Who fans Whovian um, Marcionites. But I think there is uh, an important point, which is that we miss something, even about those texts that we do think are important and value and read or watch, if we leave out those things that we think are old and aren't as relevant and aren't as interesting because we miss at the very least those points of intersection, those points of continuity, those points where the, the newer references the older. Yeah. Well, speaking to the, the text or, or, or referencing older scriptures, you, you touch on Canon in your, in your book and specifically you, you can, anybody can just Google star Wars Canon and you'll go to a Reddit thread that will, Disney owns it or they don't own it. It just quickly goes crazy. Uh, and, and the same thing could be said about Doctor Who, and then obviously the same thing could be said about our scriptures, considering there's many different versions of the Bible. So how how do you... You seem to ride the line between not dictating, but but saying that there's a, there's a case that the original creator of the Bible, in this case, or in a, a sci-fi series, um, is the canon person. So George Lucas is the person that decides what is gospel, quote-unquote, uh, or the current owner, which would be Disney, and the, or the end user, which would be you or I. And so relating that to not necessarily sci-fi, but to the Bible, if, if canon can be in a state of flux, is this healthy? And how can I then impose or deduce or interpret what is actually true uh, about the text at hand? Yeah. Uh, well, the question of canonicity, you know, arguably is, is 
different from the question of truth, but obviously it depends what you mean by true, right? I mean, I think you know, most Christians would accept that Jesus told stories that are not factual stories, but which are true in a different sort of way. Right. I, mean, I, think, Samaritan, I think I think what I would say for true would be what I'm what I'm implying is that yeah. it's it, the second Timothy God breathe useful for yeah. instruction you can take hope in this and and and, and use yeah. it yeah and lots of people debate whether Star Wars episode one is useful or not uh, so you know <laughs> it's, even it's just not. at the level of usefulness never mind getting into you know debates about authority or inerrancy <laughs> things like that um I think that canon is really one of the points of intersection between uh, science fiction and biblical studies where you can look at it superficially, you can notice that, yeah, they use the term canon in both. Hey, isn't that interesting? But if you actually start looking at the details, I think it can actually be informative for sci-fi fans and for readers of the Bible. And I'm so convinced this that I actually invented a card game called Canon the Card Game. And so I'll, I'll leave you to Google that later. I will. But essentially, you know, design something to use in class to get at this qu these questions of Canon because one of the important things to talk about in a course on the Bible is how, does, how do these writings end up together, right? They're not all written by one human individual who then you know, provides a table of contents and publishes it between two covers. And so that part of the story needs to be included in a course on the Bible. But... It's a long history, it's a long process, and it, you may be surprised to hear being interested in the same kind of things I am, but some students are not fascinated if you spend the first day of class doing this um, history introduction, you know, spanning you know, thousands of years. Mm -hmm. Go figure. Anyway, um, <laughs> actually understand fully. And um, Well, to be fair, when I, I was, to be fair, when I was doing my yeah. quote-unquote survey classes at Liberty, I also wasn't all that interested. It wasn't until I got far removed from class, I'm like, man, I really, I should have paid attention. I, sh I should have done a better job. <laughs> and so I developed a game to try to teach the subject inductively, right? But one of the things that is always true about canon is that you know, no one person you know, ultimately can decide the canon, right? I mean, George Lucas is the closest Star Wars has to a Pope, but there is no way that he can make people in their heart of hearts accept Jar Jar as authoritative. Right, uh, to go to the example that usually is brought up. Mm -hmm. right? And you know, there's no way that you know, the fact that J.J. Abrams is making Star Wars and Star Trek can, you know, means that now the, some people won't love one of them more than the other or things like that. Ultimately, you know, even when we accept the authority of another, ultimately there is a sense in which the authority lies with us to, you know, we're the one who is, giving that authority to another, recognizing the authority of another. And so ultimately, canon is something that, I mean, there, there's an individual level to it, but ultimately really it is a community thing, right? And so there are people who have their personal canon or canon within the canon, we sometimes say, where they focus on these texts more than others, or they basically leave Leviticus out and- um, right. you know, by, by, just buy a New Testament and you know, don't even bother getting one that has those earlier books. Um, the pre-Christopher Eccleston part of the Bible. Kind of <laughs> yeah. And there are different canons, you know, between Catholics and Protestants. Um, the Ethiopian church has some works in there that Protestants, Catholics, other Orthodox Christians don't have. 
And so canons in the plural are simply part of the reality of things. And this is something that I think that a lot of, a lot of Protestants don't always wrestle with, right? The early Protestant reformers were aware that the church had played a role in defining scripture up until that point. And so Martin Luther, for instance, you know, asked, you know, is James canonical? Yeah. And is it as canonical? Does it have the same value? Does it have the same weight as Romans does, as Galatians does? Um, the early reformers were aware that these are things which, if you're going to challenge church authority, then you're going to need to engage with the Bible that the church helped to uh, negotiate and um, achieve. On the other hand, one of the reasons why I, I like to talk about canon early in a course is that some students come with the a different sort of wrong assumptions, right? So there's the one that thinks it just dropped down from the sky or uh, never ask where the table of contents comes from. There are others who are sure that it came from Constantine, right? Who mm -hmm. said, you have too many gospels, pick four, uh, preferably four that really emphasize the divinity of Jesus or something like that, you know, the Da Vinci Code version. Mm -hmm. And that's not true either, right? Uh, canon emerges through consensus, right? And so one of the reasons why we have the gospels that we do as part of the New Testament canon all across you know, Christianity and not others is that the network of churches that became Orthodox Christianity shared these works in common. And when they didn't, they debated until they actually all agreed on something. Uh, so you get these sort of elements of unity and diversity, which are inevitable, right? And one of the things that I think this can help us to think about is the fact that for many Christians in our time, uh, we have this post-enlightenment approach to faith that actually thinks faith should be certainty. When in fact, I, I would argue that faith implies trust, you know, particularly the word that is translated with faith in, in the New Testament and in the Hebrew Bible Old Testament, uh, trust in God, a trust that recognizes that as humans, we don't understand everything. We don't know it all. And therefore we have to trust and we have to be humble and open to correction. And I think that recognizing that even something like canon doesn't provide us with answers where we can just open the text, we read it, that settles it, and there's no room for interpretation, there's no doubt, there's nobody who is genuinely a Christian but who has a different collection of texts or who has the same collection but interprets them differently. When we recognize that, it forces us to be uh, open to learning from God and from others and to uh, engage with community. And so doing some comparison between sci-fi canon and biblical canon, I think, can lead us to reflect on some of those things in interesting ways, because some of the dynamics are at the very least similar between the two. Yeah. Yeah, no, I agree. You talk about, and I agree, that sci-fi is narrative story as a whole, but sci-fi specifically is, an, is a way to easily carry out thought experiments. And some of those ones that come to mind are, you know, universal basic income like you have on Star Trek or colonizing another planet or what life would look like, shoot, just in the bottom of the ocean on our planet as opposed to not just a different planet. So the, the question would arise, though, is, as you see all these videos and news reportings from from everyone saying, you know, artificial intelligence is going to be one of the most dangerous things that's going to happen in your children's lifetimes. Pray to whoever you pray to, the Terminator doesn't come kill us. So thinking along that thought, 
I'm, I'm curious your thoughts about what happens if we could, for some reason, create a consciousness, and, and by consciousness, I mean something more dynamic than the thermostat that's up in my house, because that also knows its surroundings and can regulate things on a preset course. But if, if we could somehow create a consciousness or a, uh, a being that knows that it's a being, what would that implications be for, I guess, the way we view theology or the way we view Christ or the the soul or well, there's a lot of questions there. Yeah, um, there are a lot of questions there, um, and I'm not sure if we can get to all of them, but I'll. Uh, I just, think there yeah. we can start with some of the uh, some of the ones that I think are the you know maybe the most pressing and the most important to mention. Uh, one of which is you know the question of how we'll know whether we can know that we've created an artificial intelligence that is conscious, right? That has the same sense of self. Uh, the ability to reflect, to feel, uh, to think independently that we have. Right? Uh, philosophers have asked the question, how do we know that other human beings are conscious? Right? How do we know that they're not all zombies and you're, you're the only one, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, I should say, I'm the only one, right? Um, uh, talking to you, I have the feeling that you probably are too, but <laughs> really there's an analogy that's taking place there, right? I'm saying you are human like me and I have this experience, and so I'm going to assume that the outward signs that I see coming from you indicate a similar internal reality to what I experience. When we encounter aliens, when we encounter artificial intelligences that we have created, unless we've programmed them specifically and so have a fairly good reason to think this is programmed to behave like a human being, but it's not, right? We can see the code and we know... If it's functioning in a way that is more mind-like and is mysterious to us, as some AIs have already begun to, mm -hmm. then the question is, how will we know? And I think the answer is we won't with any kind of certainty, unless we're willing to listen to this thing that we created or listen to this entity that we've encountered from another world and do unto others as we would want done unto us. And so I think that really the inability to get inside the mind, if it is a mind, of an AI or an alien raises some crucial ethical questions because as human beings, when we've encountered other human beings, but who are rather different from us, for instance, you know, the, uh, the Europeans moving to the Americas, it raised theological questions, right? Are these, you know, are these, um, people included in God's plan? Why didn't God send evangelists before now? Those kinds of things. Yeah. And how should we treat them? And one of, one response was to essentially dehumanize them, to treat them as lacking a soul or as uh, not as fully human or as uh, whatever. And so our encounters with others who are different from us challenge our ethics, right? They put our ethical systems to the test. And really, I think that's one of the big questions about AIs. And as fans of uh, The Matrix, for instance, or in, you know, several other franchises that are similar, uh, oftentimes one of the reasons why things go horribly wrong and you get this uh, AI dystopia is precisely because human beings treated machines as slaves. And then when we saw signs of consciousness, we weren't willing to recognize them and accept them. Mm -hmm. uh, we weren't willing to free them. They're too, even if we recognize that there's consciousness there. We think it's generally there. It's too dangerous, right? They're different from us. They're stronger than us. They could replace us. 
And that's always the fear that accompanies those who you know, demonize the other. And, and we see what happens in sci-fi is that then, you know, we're surprised when they rise up to uh, overthrow their oppressors. Yeah. Uh, maybe we should maybe we should um, try to approach AIs in a way that reflects um, some of Jesus' ethical teachings a bit better. Yeah. Well, it it makes me it it always finds me at a loss as to why we would be surprised in in this movie or this this book that they rise up because that's what we do. I mean, that, our country is founded on that. Every yep. every oppressed people always rise up. So it yep. shouldn't. If we made them, and obviously we we would program them, that it wouldn't surprise me for that. So you have things like CRISPR and and things like that where we are able to genetically engineer things. And so what implication does that have on, and I'm, I'm going to take this in a slightly different approach, on us usurping whatever authority or sovereignty we have as a creator, quote-unquote, if we're redirecting evolution or redirecting the path that was laid out or that that is that is currently on yeah and genetic engineering right is you know is is interesting we can connect it directly and you know sort of segue naturally from what we were just talking about because of course uh, the blade runner franchise is one in which um it's less about artificial intelligence although there are some of those in there uh and is more about you know genetic engineering and you know sort of manufacturing through you know, chemical and biological processes, um, these beings, essentially to be slaves. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there are you know, all kinds of pitfalls ranging from our ability to create beings where we might say, we're going to make them mindless automata, uh, but otherwise like us, so that they can you know, be smart enough to do what we need them to do, but uh, we're basically going to rob them of sentience, and then they'll be disposable. And there too, how will we know that we've effectively robbed them of sentience right. Right? from the outside uh, when we're you know, probably starting with our own you know, g- genome as a pattern and then tinkering with it. But then there's also the potential for us to, to tinker with our own genome. I worry about that somewhat less just because, I mean, I think that there are ways in which by changing our lifestyles uh, or by maybe going out into space and exploring other worlds with different gravities and different suns and different situations. The, the evolutionary future of humankind is bound to take us in different directions if we get off Earth, but even if we stay here and um, impact the environment or just keep eating all these, um, you know, this high fructose corn syrup or something mm-hmm. like that, right? Um, we see in our lives at the present um, the way that Things that were, you know, evolutionary instincts designed to or evolved to serve us well in one circumstance are actually um, causing us trouble in the present, right? When sugars are scarce, you know, and all you, you find fruit, it, it's good to stock up on it, right? Um, that same instinct to do that when there's candy in unlimited abundance in your society can lead you down a different path that's not in the interest of your own survival. The fact that we can correct for um, vision, you know, uh, issues means that people with vision that's as poor as mine uh, aren't being weeded out by evolution, right? Yeah. <laughs> and so there's the potential for us to tinker. Um, I mean, the, as far back as there's sci-fi, there are warnings about uh, scientists playing God. And those warnings are not inappropriate in the sense that 
we ought to ask what we're doing, what are the implications of what we're doing, why are we doing it? But every every single kind of progress that humanity has made in terms of you know building things, building machines, uh, machines that make our lives so much easier, but are polluting the environment and you know, potentially transforming the world in ways that it may never recover from. We can't simply not do those things, and we'd lose a lot if we don't do them, right? And so I think there too, the key is not to simply avoid going in those directions, but to dare to ask the ethical questions, the hard moral questions before we have the technology, right? And sci-fi is a great way of doing that, precisely so that when suddenly you can have a designer baby, the question of should you, mm-hmm. and if so, how should you, is something that people have already thought about. Yeah, Because we do a much poorer job of engaging with these ethical issues when we just say, well, that'll never happen or we shouldn't do that. And then it's it's part of society, it's part of life. And now we're trying frantically to come up with a response. And oftentimes in those circumstances, I think we we, we engage in a much poorer way with the, the ethical issues and the nuances thereof. Yeah. Well, yeah, you, you make a, a gut check response to a, to a big problem just to, to band-aid it. You, you talk about the relationship between how religion is borrowed from science fiction and science fiction borrows from religion. And, and we've spoken a little bit about how you know, pastors or, or professors or just normal people will borrow allegories from science fiction. And so you, you turn that on head and you, you talk about God and, and theology and you, know, you talk about God as an alien, divine gos- cosmos, and, and, and many others. But there's one that you touched on that I was hoping you could explain because it's something I'm not familiar with and so I would assume others aren't. Uh, and it's called radically emergent theism. So can you kind of go into that a bit? Yeah. So radically emergent theism is a term that um, came across which, uh, I'm trying to remember who coined it, and even if I remember it, I might, I'm not sure that person was the person who first came up with the term. Uh, but it's the idea that uh, we get hints of in, you know, figures like, um, you know, Pierre uh, Teilhard de Chardin, where God is, is sort of the end point of the cosmos, rather than um, the starting point. Although for, for, um, for Teilhard, it was sort of a both and that he was trying to say there. But the idea that you know, just as human beings, you know, we seem to emerge, you know, the, the things that we traditionally called the soul consciousness seem to emerge from you know, the complex arrangement of the matter that makes us up. Uh, what kind of complex reality, what kind of transcendent reality might emerge from the universe as a whole or a multiverse or things like that? And so one possibility is that something that might deserve to be called God in the traditional sense could be you know, the, uh, you know, the emergent aspects, the transcendent aspects, the um, integrative aspects of all that is. And one of the things I think is interesting about that, right? I mean, I'm not sure that that's a theological idea that one could, you know, sort of verify empirically. Mm-hmm. Uh, but one of the things I think is interesting about it is that if putting together uh, molecule, you know, uh, atoms, molecule, cells at this level produces a transcendent aspect, right? Personhood, creativity, things like that. Do we have reason to think that that doesn't happen at higher levels of organization of the cosmos? And 
if it does, then one of the things that it actually takes out of the picture in a way that I think is really fascinating is the whole question of the existence of God. Because if, if God means that which is ultimate, that which is transcendent, that which is you know, the highest level of, of existence, uh, that which you know, continues to exist, that which um, ultimately leads to our existence, then one thing you could say is that, you know, okay, well then it wouldn't make sense to be anything less than a pantheist. Right, mm -hmm. and to say that there's this, this you know, the, the universe has some of these um, aspects, but it may be that the universe is not just this this mindless force, this you know, kind of pan pantheistic kind of thing, but actually has creativity and things that emerge from it at the highest level, and you know, in some types of theology, the universe is thought of as, as essentially relating to God as the body does to you know, the human consciousness, the soul. And so some sort of universe always exists as in, you know, process thought and things like that. And so within that framework, right, that emergent aspect might always be there. Right? And within that framework, right, if you're saying, you know, God is what is ultimate and most transcendent, can anyone really deny that that exists? Yeah. We can debate what that's like. We can debate the attributes of the divine. But the existence thereof seems to be something that it makes sense to posit, given what we know of the universe. Mm -hmm. And so one reason why I think that idea is worth exploring is because it, it, it's, it provides an interesting comeback to those who say, you know, well, an atheist is just like a Christian, except we just deny the existence of one more God than you do. Uh, there have been some interesting books, you know, by scientists, by theologians that have suggest, you know, there are, there are ways of thinking about the divine that actually not only make sense, but might, might be logical and implicit in the way we conceptualize the universe. And science fiction, again, although it tends to focus more on powerful entities that are more like closer to us than to one integrative transcendent reality that encompasses everything, mm -hmm. uh, but nonetheless, it provides opportunity to explore some of these things. And there have actually been some interesting uh, science fiction stories where you know, human beings connect with one another. You know, we connect our minds, we connect in interesting ways, and then we encounter aliens and do the same. And this collective consciousness emerges that seems to be growing into, you know, or in the direction of something that at least is closer to what people have traditionally meant by divinity. And so it's that kind of emergent theism where, um, a divine reality results from evolutionary processes, both in the natural sense, the evolution of the cosmos, and in the biological sense. Thank, yeah, I, I read that part of your book a few times, and I still didn't quite get it, so I appreciate that. Um, so, and, and good job on that. I assume that was French pronunciation. I would not be able to do that. You ask a question in your, in your book, and it's, and it's related to the afterlife or the soul or what happens after we die. Uh, and so I'm going to put you on the spot a bit. You, you say that you pose the question as such that if there's no afterlife, but there is a possibility that when you die, a quote-unquote version of yourself exists in a different parallel universe, would that be comforting to you? And so I guess my question is, is it? Because uh, you don't answer it. Right. <laughs> Uh, right. Um, and part of that is because I'm trying to you know, help, help people 
uh, think about things and not just give them my answers. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I would say no, uh, simply because, you know, in an infinite multiverse, presumably they're not just an infinite number of versions of me, but uh, some of them are probably having a really terrible time of it, <laughs> and uh, things are really going poorly, uh, at least as often as for, you know, as, you know, things are going well. And so it's not clear that that is a hopeful prospect in that sense. But what I think that you know, science fiction lets us think about both in terms of you know, the transporter on Star Trek, making copies of oneself, uh, downloading one's thoughts into a machine and living forever in that way, is what is it that we're hoping will survive? Right? And I think a lot of the, the contemporary you know, popular thought about that is focused on you know, the survival of my ego right, my individual self, consciously, my experience. And the question is, you know, what will that look like, right? Because, you know, we have, I mean, there's, there's a Doctor Who episode where somebody is brought back to life and uh, they keep on living and living, but they still have a limited, you know, uh, brain capacity. And so, you know, they write down stuff to remember it, but basically they forget their past. Yeah. If we're going to, you know, live forever in something like the present form that we have, then that becomes an issue. And if we're going to actually remember absolutely everything, then that's a very different kind of existence than what I have now. And so in what sense is that that self that's been transformed so that everything is remembered always is still me, right? And so whether one thinks of you know, afterlife in terms of you know, God will remember everything or God will recreate right, and bring back into existence that which has ceased to exist, or thinks in terms of an immortal soul that survives death and so provides that continuity. In all of those scenarios, there are aspects of ongoing existence uh, or a shift to a timeless existence, which is yet another you know, way that things are sometimes thought about. Uh, timeless existence is not what we have now, right? And so all of these actually envisage someone or something continuing to exist that in some way is not me as I know myself now. And so I think it's important to ask, you know, why are we emphasizing this? And why are we thinking about it in the ways that we do? And why aren't we thinking about some of the, the, the philosophical and theological aspects of these things, which ultimately you know, are, are really about our human limitations and what we think the role of those are in terms of you know, our created existence and any future afterlife or existence that you know, might be in store for us. You make the the case that another way that uh, religion can borrow from sci-fi is or or is has done it in the past is that Paul was doing that in Athens in Acts seventeen at the I don't know how to say this word Areopagus is that how you say that word It's probably not right <laughs> and and how he was borrowing the quote unquote sci-fi of the day to make his point can you can you talk to that a bit Yeah well certainly the um... There are some ancient thinkers, you know, some ancient philosophers who asked about, you know, what if there are multiple worlds and you know, what if there are entities up there? In fact, the whole idea that there are, you know, angels and, you know, um, cherubs and seraphs and things that, you know, inhabit someplace up there. These are the precursors to science fiction in a, in a way, right? I mean, science fiction is people, it, it represents people in a scientific era asking the same sorts of questions about, what other kinds of beings inhabit our cosmos? You know, are some of them up in that direction? Do any of them ever come down here? What might we learn if we encounter them? Those kinds of things. Uh, but some ancient thinkers, including some philosophers, 
asks about you know, um, other types of life, asks these kinds of things. And what we see uh, in Acts 17, what we see throughout, I'd say, throughout the biblical literature is that the biblical authors and the people whose stories are told in the Bible regularly engage with the thinking of their time. And so to the extent that we see the use of terminology, right, things like logos in Gospel of John, uh, the terminology that's used for sacrifice in Leviticus uh, is actually, you know, cognate to words that are found at Ugarit and places, you know, in the ancient Near East. So clearly some of these ideas, you know, some of the terminology is, is shared. And so to the extent that science fiction is engaging with uh, philosophical and theological questions, we don't necessarily need to accept what this or that sci-fi author or sci-fi franchise presents, but there's no less reason to engage with it than there is to engage with you know, a Plato or Socrates or an Aristotle mm -hmm. as Christian faith historically has done. And that's really, that's I think the key point to make. I want to end with one final, it's not really a question, more of just an open-ended conversation. So you have three short stories at the end of your book. And the first one I read at least maybe four or five times. I don't want to give the story away unless you're willing to do that. It's not very long, but it is well worth the read for anyone. Go out and buy the book just for that short story. It it made me feel like four different emotions. Like I somehow, if I was that, that lady that went back in time, Doctor Who style, and I saw a lot of correlations there of being able to know the language and, and whatnot, it seemed like a way of inserting my own possible divinity or affecting ultimate divinity or having nothing to do with anything or breaking everything. And so it, I don't know, I got something each different time I read it. So I'm kind of curious as to if that's what you were intending. Yeah. So uh, the, the story, you know, essentially emerged out of a, 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 a science fictional kind of thought experiment that someone presented to me. And so it essentially was turning my, my instinctive uh, answer to the question, the challenge that had been posed to me by an atheist that I, I talked with on my blog into a story. The question was, you know, what would it take to make you lose your faith? Right? And one of the things that I think, the one reason why I think that's an important question to ask is that if we say nothing, then essentially we have a sort of a dogmatic system where we think we know everything, we've got all wrapped up, nothing should make us change our mind. And we've essentially deified ourselves and we've deified, you know, and our, what we, our object of worship potentially is, is our system of beliefs rather than God. Mm -hmm. As human beings, we need to be open to being wrong, right? And philosophers often say that uh, things that are unfalsifiable, right, nothing can challenge them, are essentially meaningless or worthless, right? Anyone can have them, right? In any religious standpoint, you can hold a view and say, nothing would change my mind. And whatever your religious view you would probably hope that people in other view, who have other viewpoints than your own and who are thus wrong would be open to changing so that they can be right like you are, right? But if we're not open to being challenged, then how would we know that we're not the ones who are wrong, right? And so it seems that part and parcel of recognizing our human limitations is being open to being challenged. And so I thought that this was an important question, right? What would it take to make you lose your faith? And so one of the first things that came to mind was, okay, so... One of the things I want to do is go back to the first century, hang outside, hang out outside of a particular tomb and see if anything interesting happens. Right? Mm -hmm. And that got me thinking about, you know, questions like, you know, so what is resurrection? When ancient Christians, you know, ancient followers of Jesus held to the hope that God would raise them from the dead and the Romans, you know, 
tortured them and fed them to the dogs or you know burned their bodies or things like that did that prevent you know does that prevent god from raising them from the dead you know i think the classic theological answer would be no right but so you know if if jesus's body was stolen from the tomb or you know was devoured by dogs or you know simply became there does that disprove that god could justify jesus or may have justified jesus beyond death not necessarily right it might disprove one particular way of envisaging that but it doesn't necessarily mean that on the other hand one of the things i realize is that you know there are some things that might lead to the point where i would have to change my views so much that i would no longer say i'm a christian but that doesn't necessarily mean and maybe shouldn't necessarily mean that i'm i'm no longer a person who believes in god right, right. Uh, because there are oftentimes you know we have these options where either you know if 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 this didn't happen then i become an atheist well why why not convert to judaism why not hinduism or buddhism why not some other viewpoint that's you know religious and so i and i realize as well that you know if i you know the, the resurrection of jesus the bodily physical resurrection as a tangible visible event mattered less to me if if I went back to Galilee, you know, a few years earlier and saw Jesus kicking a puppy, that might actually be more troubling <laughs> to me in some ways, right? You know, it gets at who Jesus is in some way. And so, you know, really the story was an attempt to explore that. But I think, you know, one of the interesting questions is, you know, we want certainty, right? We desire it. We crave it. We want to know we're right about, you know, certain things. And Really what I'm trying to do in that story, which I think I can say without giving away the ending, because mm-hmm. I do think it is better experience, yeah. is you know, to give some give a character give character characters in the story the chance to go back and be there and yet recognize that ultimately sometimes finding a definite answer to a, one particular question can simply raise new questions. And maybe that's okay and maybe that's the way things should be. Right? Yeah. Uh, and so really, I was trying to explore that desire we have for certainty and use time travel as a way to to get at the relationship between, you know, seeing and believing, ultimately. Yeah, no, it was good. Well, I'll end it. I'll end it with that. Dr. McGrath, thank you for your time this morning. I know um, I know we've been working on this for a while, scheduling it out. I've, I've enjoyed it greatly. It's fun to talk to someone else that, that enjoys science fiction and religion as much as I do. I know you reference in your book, your wife does not share that, that trait with you and mine doesn't either. She is more than comfortable with me just watching that somewhere else. So thank you for your time today. And I, I enjoyed it quite a bit. I'd love to do it again sometime. Yeah. Well, I know we had more stuff to talk about than we managed to get to today. Mm-hmm. And so um, we can have another conversation sometime. Sure. Uh, in the meantime, let me know when this is available online and I'll, I'll even try and persuade my wife to listen. To <laughs> Sounds good. Um, what would you uh, direct people to to, to engage with you, definitely everyone listening, please go out and buy the book. It is, it is not a long read nor a hard read, but it is a good read. And you can, I know you can find that on Amazon. That is called Theology and Science Fiction. Yep. Nice, big, bright blue cover. Uh, how else would you have other people engage with you? Uh, well, they can get, find my blog, which um, tellingly used to be called Exploring Our Matrix. Uh, and I changed its name to Religion Prof, uh, which was my longtime um, uh, Twitter nickname. Precisely because I found that I increasingly had students who hadn't seen the Matrix movies, and so <laughs> it, was, it just felt dated. Uh, so, yeah, the the uh, Religion Prof blog on Pathios is another place where you can find me, and I, I'm also on Twitter, and on I have a, a Facebook page as well as you know, I'm always happy to connect with people anywhere and engage in these kinds of conversations. Fantastic. 
Fantastic. Well, good. I'll give you back the rest of your morning and uh, hope you have a good day. Yeah, thanks. You too. Great talking to you. You as well. Thank you so much for listening. I would encourage, I would ask for your feedback. Please email us at church at gmail.com. Interact with us on Facebook and Twitter. Uh, your feedback only helps to make the show better. If you have liked in any way or if you engaged in any way with any of the, the podcast episodes that you've heard so far, please consider going to our Patreon page. You can find that at church.com. There's a big, huge button up there. Your donations help so much. You are listening to the executive producer, editor, scheduler, emailer, uh, and I will continue to do this podcast as long as I'm able. I greatly enjoy it, and your help will ensure that we can continue to have these open, honest conversations that we're afraid to have in church. I was talking with people that are educated about those topics, so please consider that. Like us on Facebook. Uh, there is a Facebook group uh, that you can interact with and have conversations with other people that listen like yourselves. It is a fantastic group. So I look forward to talking with you there, and we will see you in the next episode.